welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. Pray with me. Father, I ask you to clean me from all the stuff that is not good so I can represent you well. And so that this message will be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want you to picture this. It's 1988. You're like, what? I wasn't even born then. Is there such a thing as 88? You was eight years old. So anybody remember 1988? You can put your hands up discreetly. You can wink at me if you do. You remember that? First year secondary school. You don't remember 88 at all. She's only 50. Just as I'm, 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 I'm looking at um, my brethren Tracy, I'm remembering small groups. Don't forget to join your small groups. They are amazing. Ours is good. Made up of um, women um, my age, so it makes me feel really comfortable. And a few younger ones who teach us how to use WhatsApp. <laughs> Just somebody sent the manual the other day of how to use WhatsApp. So we know we're getting to that stage when I used to laugh at my mom and Curtis's dad when they used to use the phone like this. I'm doing it with something this size. So it's coming, Jermaine, or it's here already. <laughs> so picture 1988, I'm um, six, no, 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 I'm not that old, about 14, um, got my hair in a, like a black wrap I used to wear around my head with the curls coming out the top, don't do that ladies because it would just eat out your sides, so I did that and I think I had a grey skirt on, blue, navy blue jumper, Navy blue and gray and light blue tie, crisp white shirt, decent black shoes from Clarks, which I hated because I wanted to have um, trendy shoes like everybody else. My mom said it had to last for the year. And um, I was with a few girls and then we see like a swarm of young people just running towards us with angry faces. Now I'm not in no trouble, not with my mom. I don't get in any trouble. You never hear my name on the radar. You never hear me associated with anything. And this swarm of people from another school were coming towards us. And we didn't know what to do. We didn't want to separate because you don't want to leave your brethren. Do you know what I mean? So we stayed together. And sadly, this kept happening month after month after month. We would step back and they would go for one friend in particular and target her. And actually beat her up. It was awful. And there was no real reason, but there was just a phrase. I heard, I heard you said, I don't know if you remember that phrase in the 80s. I heard, and that was enough for them to launch their punches. Nowadays, and I don't know if I'm even with the trend, but they now call it beef. Is it still called beef? Turn to pork yet? Still beef? Still beef. We're going to talk about beef today. We're going to talk about the war on grace. You have to stay with me. So what is conflict? I want to throw some words out associated with conflict. It's threatening, it's avoidance, it's aggressive, it's confrontational, it can be disruptive. It can be awkward, solving sometimes, clarifying points of view. Passive, it can be a resolution. Fighting, arguing, disputes, territory, war, gang warfare, battle, objection, protest, grievance. Remember this? A kerfuffle. A kerfuffle sounds so light, right? (laughs) 
a resolution, a common aim, differing goals, shouting, frustration or warfare, disagreement, a fight or just beef. But conflict is not always negative. Sometimes positive results arise from some conflicts and views are heard and issues are ironed out. And when I think of that, I think of issues like maybe the, suffra the suffragettes and women getting their rights. I think of the civil rights movement. There was conflict there, but good things arose out of it. So conflict is different views or needs when they're clashing. It could be a struggle or a clash between opposing forces or a battle, a disagreement or a controversy. What do you think creates conflict? Throw some words at me. Misunderstanding. Say that again. Different opinions. Ego. Ignorance. Yeah, we've got misinterpretation, miscommunication, needs, wants, perceptions, values, feelings, and emotions. And as I said, conflict's not always negative. It can bring about change for the better. It can allow us to understand others better. And conflict can bring mutual per personal growth for all involved. So let's talk about beef on earth. I'm gonna talk about peace on earth, it's not Christmas. Beef on earth, and there is conflict all around, but can you name any well-known conflicts this century or even in the previous century? Just throw them at me. You know them if you was listening to history. Say that again. Great War, give me another one. Vietnam, the Cold War. So it, it, apartheid in South Africa would have been conflict. Iraq, yeah, the Iraq war. So like we've got the war on terror. We've got the Arab and Israeli conflicts. We've got the war in Yemen, which sometimes we forget, which has been going on since 2014. We've got a current war now, Russia v Ukraine. We've also had Rwanda. We've had World War One and Two. And let me talk about World War One, which I know so much too, which I know so much about now, but I didn't when I was doing history A level. World War II started in 1939 and ended in 1945. It was between country, the countries in Europe and in Asia. World War II began on the 1st of September 1939 with the invasion of Poland by Nazi Germany. And Adolf Hitler planned to expand the Nazi state. In response, Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany on the 3rd of September, 1939. Conflict spilled over to Africa and even to America. The largest conflict in history spanning over the entire world involving more countries than any other war. Not all countries were involved and remained neutral, and some remained neutral like Ireland and Sweden and Switzerland. Genocidal killings by Nazi Germany included the mass slaughter of Jews, Chinese and Korean nationals by Japan, as well as internal killings in the former Soviet Union and other places. In World War II, produced sadly 50 million deaths, more than any war to date. In early 1945, the US dropped two atomic bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan surrendered a few days later. Germany surrendered on the 8th of May, 1945. 
In the six years that the conflict took place, it took more lives and it destroyed more land and property around the globe than any other previous war. Do you know of any biblical conflicts? Can you just throw some at me? God and the devil, so they would call it the great controversy. Anything else? Any other biblical conflicts? Beef in the Bible. Joseph and his siblings. The Israelites and Philistines. And give me one more. Say that again. Oh, that's right. Listen to me. Don't let the little children teach you. Let the little children teach you. Let me tell you about the first biblical conflict. I will put it to you that after Adam blamed Eve for eating the forbidden fruit, that there was beef. I think you thought that Eve just let that go, right? When Adam said to God, the woman that you gave me, I could imagine her looking at him and saying, really? Really, dog? And I can imagine saying to Adam saying to her, well, who told you to wonder? Don't you know that with me is the best place? And Eve responding, what do we have to do now? Beef. Conflict exists on the planet. And so there's one thing I can guarantee you, that there will be beef here in church. You look a little shocked. There will be beef here in church. I'll make no mistake. Some church conflicts have led to years of ongoing feuding, hierarchy with families in church, splits, splinter groups. You know, we're quite famous for the break-off groups, people. And these are based on doctrinal and non-doctrinal issues. It has led, you, uh, it has led to church hurt, and sadly, even people leaving the faith. So with such drastic outcomes, you would think that we had mastered the art of conflict resolution. I want us to look at Acts chapter 15 and the conflict that arose in the early church and how it was managed. As it's coming up, in the previous chapter, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, Syria, and then after their missionary journey, they were planting several churches and had planted several churches in Lysteria and Dibra with mostly Gentile believers, with a mixture of Jewish believers. But when they returned to Antioch, they were met by a major conflict. So I'm going to summarize Acts chapter 15, because it's quite a long chapter to read through. But what I want you to do is next, I think the next two weeks, you'll be studying in your small group, so you can read it through thoroughly. To summarize, the Passion Version says, some false teachers came from Judea to trouble the believers. They taught that unless you are circumcised, as the law of Moses requires, you cannot be saved. This conflict was major because it challenged salvation itself. These Christians from Jewish backgrounds came and taught the congregation in Antioch that the Gentiles may certainly become Christians, but only after becoming Jews and submitting to Jewish rituals, including circumcision. But it was difficult for some Jewish Christians at the time to accept that the Gentiles could be brought into the church as equal members 
without first coming through the law of Moses. Imagine I give my time, my entire life, to rigorously following the law of Moses. And people just come to salvation just like that. That's not fair. I can hear my children say, that's not fair. So I want you to picture this. You're doing chores in the house, yeah? And you're doing it in order to get some money to get some ice cream. And then you see your brother get out of bed. And he gets washed casually and he gets dressed and he has his breakfast and he doesn't lift a single finger. Older siblings, you know how that feels. There's a steam that is inside you. And then what happens is, your dad calls you both and gives you both a fiver and says, you can go and get some ice cream when you get out to play. And you go to the ice cream van and despite the variety on the menu, you order one scoop of vanilla ice cream and you want it, you know, the bit that's right at the side, which is a little bit dry when you've got the scoop bit and it's got like the ice poking through it. You ask for that bit. And you want it with a plain, soft cone, like this cone is going off. And the server says to you, do you want strawberry or chocolate sauce with that? And you look at him strange and say, no, I'll have some ketchup, please. And your brother is behind you, and he makes his order. And he walks away from the ice cream truck, truck with a massive waffle cone. You know, the waffle cones what roll over each other like it's folded. He's got two sauces on his ice cream, about five scoops. He's got chocolate and strawberry, and he's got sprinkles, hundreds and thousands for you born in the 70s. And he's got nuts. Oh, I forgot. He's also got a tissue to hold a cone so he doesn't get the sauce all over his hand. And you come up to your brother and you say, in order to please mum and dad, you're only, you're only able to eat the plain ice cream with a soft cone, and don't forget the ketchup. You say, why? Didn't you read the menu? All of this is available. And he takes your loaded ice cream from you and he says, you can have this later after you clean the house. Deep down, I know I have a problem, and maybe some of you do, with grace. Our conflict is not only without, with others, but it's within. I mean, how can I get something without deserving it? I watch a lot of um, videos of people saying, if you quote a scripture, I'll, I'll give you some money. I don't know if you've seen some of those on TikTok or, you know, I just want to say God loves you. And then somebody just gives you some money to pay for your whole shopping. And everyone is always skeptical. There's got to be a small print. Like, if I take this money and you pay for my shopping, does that mean i got to cook for you tonight? Because I don't know you, you're not coming to my house. If I take this free gift, will I have to pay you back for years to come or all my family now indebted to you? In my observation, I've known that, and I have experienced a grapple with grace. I did a small poll in this place just before we started. And I found that, I'll tell you who the people are who struggle with grace. Adults. We're skeptical. Like, it can't be free. But if I offered sweets to the children in knowing them, not strangers, 
they wouldn't say, how much do I owe you for that? It would just be, thanks, auntie, thanks. Maybe those who hear it from the pulpit only, from their dad or mom, please God, not me, and at home don't receive it. Maybe preachers themselves struggle with the notion of grace. So I'm going to go back to these men. They thought they were special, but they were so passionate that you know what they did in Acts? They walked 300 miles from Judea to Antioch. No, from Antioch to Judea, to Jerusalem, um, to trouble. No, they walked from Judea to Antioch to trouble the believers with this message. The message was that you guys think you, think you are saved. And you mean well. But you won't be right with God unless you are circumcised. And you bring yourself under the law of Moses. Your faith in Jesus is not enough. You go add obedience to the Mosaic law. They were critical of the teachings of Paul and Barnabas for teaching that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps this was due to the fact that they were a set-aside people descended straight from Abraham to demonstrate to the world the importance of worshiping the holy God and to provide the Messiah. And now that God the Son has come to earth in humanity as a sacrifice for their sins for the Jews and Gentiles, they feel that they have a specific entitlement. When the gospel is expanded to the non-Jewish world, the Jewish Christians who have lived a particular devout life have a difficult time in accepting that the purpose and necessity of their separation from other nations is now over. And the straight truth is that their salvation is in Christ alone. Verse 1 says that they have been taught and still believe that unless you are circumcised, the law of Moses requires that you cannot be saved. So this wasn't a side issue. This, this wasn't like veggie v vegan. It wasn't like Christian contemporary music v hymns. It wasn't, shall we have morning church or afternoon church after five? It was an issue that was not about the peripheral issues of the Christian life, but it was based on how somebody was made right with God. It went to the heart of Christianity, the foundation, the bones. This, I could see, was the enemy's tactic. It was to establish a righteousness by works belief in the church. And they would have theological battles that would divide and fill them with hatred towards one another. I've been around long enough to see fractions and different groups come up amongst us and in church. And to be fair, although I love the debate, and although I love the tryout, what I realized is that it did nothing, and it does nothing but divide. It does nothing but bring hate and dissension and everything else associated with conflict. Paul and Barnabas did not take and let this go easy. They took a firm stand, and the issue was taken to Jerusalem for further debate to settle this matter with the guidance of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So I've been here 
even on the periphery of many ideas that made me feel separate and made me feel like a specialist. I have once believed that I had the inside scope on God and believed that his message of salvation by being saved by grace through faith was too simple for such a complex problem as sin. Surely there were a few prerequisites such as, and, and these are real, getting to church at half past nine in the morning would mean a secure salvation. Going barefoot in the sanctuary would mean that I had a close and literal walk with God. To have an extension on the back of your head would barrier your deeper walk with God. You think that these are crazy. We've lived them. We've heard them. And I'm not against varying opinions. I couldn't fit a piece of extension on here if I tried. But I know now it would not interfere with me being saved. But what are we saying here? Are we made right through, with God, through Jesus, what Jesus Christ did on the cross alone? Or are we saved by Jesus through what he has done by accompanying my actions? So are we made right through what Jesus did on the cross alone? That's it. Or are we saved by what Jesus did on the cross plus what I do? Now, this was a debate that Paul and Barnabas had to clear up. In verse 5, they say, we must continue the custom of circumcision. This is what the um, people that bought the complaint said. And require that the people keep the law of Moses. This is a debate that, as I said, you've definitely had within, if not without. Like many of you, you may think, or at least have believed, that you were saved by your good works. And Jesus was helping you along as a sidekick along the way. Paul understood their struggle because he too was a Pharisee. And he had to surrender to salvation in Christ alone. He responded later in Galatians 2 verse 16. We know that no one receives God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law. But only by faith of Jesus, the Messiah. His faithfulness has saved us and we have received God's perfect righteousness. Now we know that God accepts no one by keeping of religious laws. They had so much debate and dispute. And the main question at this Jerusalem council was, are we made right through faith in Christ alone? Or is it a combination of faith in Christ and my good works? Peter, you remember Peter, Christ's right-hand man is at this council. He's a senior voice right there. And he says, the teachings that you're giving the people, they are burdensome. They're, they're, they're too heavy. And you're limiting God's grace. He goes on to say that the Gentiles, stroke the new believers, have been saved by grace through faith and should be accepted for just that. And at verse 9, he says, their hearts were made pure by faith. And in verse 10, Peter says this, so why on earth... Would you limit God's grace by placing your yoke of religious duties on the shoulders of believers that neither we or the ancestors have been able to bear? 
Now, we know Israel's track record of keeping the law. I mean, upon receiving it, they were having a party and worshiping a golden calf. And there's so many examples when they fall out of grace and are struggling to keep up with what God has told them. The law was good in many ways, but it was not a way to make us right. Peter says in verse 11, don't you believe that we are introduced to eternal life through the grace of our Lord Jesus? The same grace that has brought these people new life? Everyone became silent. Beef and then silence. The council listened to the miracles and encounters of Paul and Barnabas what they had on their travels, preaching to the Gentiles. The ancient words of Amos, the prophet, are fulfilled just then. And then James concludes in verse 19. We should not add unnecessary burden upon non-Jewish converts who are turning to God. We will go to them as apostles and teach them to set us free from offering sacrifice to idols sexual immorality, and eating anything strangled or with any blood. Interesting request, but we can look at that in our small groups. But James is basically saying, these people are turning to Jesus, and we should not burden them with any extras. There is a coin term, though, and as I'm preaching this, it's running in my head. Hyper grace. That means you can just be unrepentant and there's no need for transformation because it's a gift of grace. So some of you might be looking for a get out clause. Ah, oh, when you preach grace today, I can just do what the heck I want. No. This is not what this chapter is speaking of. And Paul tackles this later in Romans 6, verse 1 to 2. He says, so what do we do then? Do we persist in sin? so that God's kindness and grace will increase. What a terrible thought. Other versions say, God forbid. We have died to sin once and for all, and as a dead man passes away from this life, so how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? So this is not hyper grace. This is just grace. What are you telling yourself? And what are you telling others about the gift of salvation, about the gift of grace. How do you battle? How do you beef with your thoughts on salvation? My biggest beef wasn't in 1988 when I was running with my friend um, who was going to catch some licks, as we say in our culture, that means a beating. That wasn't my biggest beef, and that's not been my biggest beef in life, an internal fight. The biggest thought in here and in here has been about grace. How amazing is it? Is it for me? Can I have it? Is there a catch? Is there a small print? I mean, do I need to do Jesus plus diet? It's good to keep yourself healthy, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What about Jesus and how you dressed? That's important as well. Keep yourself in a certain way. Causes less problems, I suppose, for yourself. I'm trying to be tender and present and tactful as I say that. That's for men and women, for you or both of you. 
Jesus plus your church attendance. I've been here four weeks in a row. I'm going to get more grace in my cup. What about your financial contributions? You should see my tithe, man. Does that get you more grace? What about the good deeds that you've totaled up for the day? Oh, I helped an old lady across the street. I mowed my neighbor's lawn. You know what I did? I, um, the shopkeeper gave me too much and I gave him back. The fact that I'm even thinking about these things means I need more grace. My intentions weren't pure. What about attending church early? I mean, you could sit in here at 9.30 if you want. We'll be here at 5. What about the fact that you know so many Bible stories by heart? Does that increase your grace quota? And there's nothing wrong with these things, as I just said, but they can come out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And his transforming power. I did do a poll here, and the poll doesn't have seemed to have translated, but I remember some of it from my head, and I thought, who would find it difficult to accept grace? And I mentioned adults, didn't I? And I said, preacher's kids, sadly, and the preacher himself. But maybe academics, that was given to me. Um, lawyers who are fighting for justice, even social activists, like, this can't be for free, this person needs to be punished. What do you mean you're letting Donald Trump into heaven? Oh, no. I need to go before him. What do you mean I'm not getting in? What's he doing in? Social activists would have an issue with grace, maybe. What about people who have gone through hard times, who've had difficult life experiences, maybe adverse child experiences, where you're like, I was never wanted. You know, I was abused. How could this possibly be for free? I don't trust this. I think I didn't trust it because I was fatherless. I was like, I don't understand how... That works. Like, why would you love and accept me and just give me this gift for free? I don't get it on earth, so I don't really understand it in heaven. I'm thinking about who else would struggle with the concept of grace. Us. Maybe if you called yourself an Adventist, maybe we would struggle with grace. We would struggle with the fact that I'm sure I've got to do something. I've got to help you with this, Lord. Don't you know who I am? Maybe you would struggle with the concept of grace. And it's the concept of feeling unworthy. Like, there's no way this can be for free. I have got to pay you back for this. In Romans 6, as I said, no, I didn't. The men with the great dispute, you know what happened to them? They, what happened to them? Because they were called false teachers. What happened to the men in this dispute? What do you think happened if you haven't read the chapter? Because you look at me puzzled. I read it. What do you think happened to the men who came and accused the new believers as kind of being wishy-washy? What do you think happened to those men? Just throw it at me. It's all right. If you said they're, they're born in hell, you can tell me. What, what do you think happened to those men? Just throw it out, please. They were disfellowshipped. Oh, what does that word mean, Dean? 
They were excommunicated, no longer a part of this group. You've got to go. Anybody else? What happened to those men, the false teachers who came in and spread these lies about salvation? They left. Did someone say they left? I heard that. Give me one more. What happened to those men? Maybe something even more drastic. Like they were wiped out and all their generations. <laughs> and that generation and the generations to come removed from the third to the fourth generation wiped off the planet. What happened to those men, to those false teachers? Come on, give me a guess. I know you don't watch movies. They were struck by lightning. Oh, you're harsh. <laughs> oh, you don't want that to be God. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to get somebody with that. It didn't have to be you. <laughs> Do you know what happened to those men? They weren't exposed. They weren't mentioned by names. And you know that their hearts were transformed by the grace of God. And it was also a demonstration of the graciousness from Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and others. I mean, you would love to expose false teachers. You would love to put them on. If you were around back in my day and Instagram was around then, we came across so many false teachers. And I remember the church would go on the mic and say, brethren, the rod is here. I don't know if you can hear me clearly. Brethren, the rod is here. And that was a, a group of false teachers. And I would look around and I'll say, oh my days. Someone's going to lock the doors. I need to find a way of escape. But I need to make sure my mom and brother and sister are with me. And that's how we would deal with false teachers. We would excommunicate them and make them push them underground. Because if you try to sit on something, it will storm the capital. Do you know what I mean? But they received a level of graciousness from Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and others. And that's because the conflict was brought out in the open. It was brought before the elders and the leaders. And it was discussed and it was battled out until they finished with it using scripture as well, and the grace of God. So in landing this plane again, grace hears, and grace allows room for debate. It allows room for difference. Grace listens, and grace protects. Grace restores, and grace allows us to be gracious. Grace saves through faith, alone in Jesus Christ. It's worth the conflict. It's amazing. For by grace, Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9, if you can have it on the screen, please, says, for by grace you have been saved by faith. Nothing you did could ever earn this salvation. For it was the love gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will be able to ever boast. For salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. For by grace you have been saved by faith. Nothing you did could ever earn this salvation. For it was a love gift 
from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will be able to boast for salvation is never a reward for good works or for human striving. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. Amazing grace. Thank you. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you have been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit londonlivechurch.com. Mm-hmm.